Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a non-profit, non-partisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone, LLP. We hope you enjoy it. Each fishing boat wants to catch as much fish as they can. People like to talk about climate change that way. They say this is why we can't tackle it, is that it makes sense for each of us to you know, live our lives and emit a lot of carbon. And there's a, there's a real power to that metaphor, but I think there's an incredible weakness too. And that's one thing that I think you'll see as I read this and go through the book. It's not a great metaphor because we picture all sheep as sort of the same size, eating about the same amount. And we don't imagine that climate change, or, or rather that this sort of ecological catastrophe will make some of the sheep actually get fatter. But climate change is more like that. Imagine some people's sheep so much bigger. Imagine some people's sheep not doing worse with climate change, but actually doing better. It's a much trickier problem than the tragedy of the commons. So now I'll read for about 10 minutes. I actually don't know how much time we have. Okay. I'm going to read for a while. Give me some... Give me some signals when it starts to go badly. Read for about 10 minutes. And um, if they start throwing things, please do. And then we'll, move to the, then we'll move to the photos. It can be like that. All right. This is from the introduction to the book. The contract had called for either a boa or an anaconda, whichever would best handle the crowds. And in the end, the bankers got the latter, a green anaconda, six feet long and 85 pounds, which hung from the neck of a long-haired snake handler who lurked amid the exotic plants next to a fake waterfall and the model dressed in Amazonian garb. Nearby were two scarlet macaws and wire cages, a Brazilian dance troupe, a hut offering free organic smoothies. At the base of an 18-foot waterfall were giant koi swimming in a pond, 4,500 gallons of warm filtered water that would soon be dumped into the East River. The jungle was in a tent that was on the promenade at South Street Seaport in Lower Manhattan. 30 by 60 feet, suffused with a light mist, and heated to 80 degrees. The tent had white sides and a clear roof through which visitors could just make out the skyscrapers of Wall Street. It was cold outside, a typical 39-degree day, or February day in early 21st century New York. So those beckoned inside by the street team, which was two models walking the streets to entice passersby to the event, had to quickly shed their jackets and scarves, so stark was the difference in temperature which was, of course, the point. The stunt was a coming-out party, the most expensive stop on Deutsche Bank's 80-event The Investment Climate is Changing roadshow held across the United States. In scale and imagination, it was rivaled only by the ski village and 90-foot snowboard slope that the bank had constructed a few weeks earlier along Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. There were chalets decorated with deer antler chandeliers and wooden snowshoes, Deutsche Bank-branded Bank ice sculptures, models dressed as snow bunnies, bottled water from Iceland, faux snow blown down from the roof of a Versace store, and 30 tons more realistic snow created by a wood chipper and a freezer full of ice blocks. There were also two pro snowboarders who would later complain that nobody had built them a proper jump. And that was, to me, by the way, in a, in a phone call to these guys, that was their main takeaway from this event. Not that it was weird to be snowboarding on Rodeo Drive, but that if they'd had a jump, it would have been a lot more fun. <laughs> Together, the Manhattan and Beverly Hills events cost $1.5 million dollars. But they were carbon neutral, the bankers boasted. Their greenhouse emissions offset by investments in a biogas project in India. At South Street Seaport, every attendee was given a certificate from the carbon credit company as proof. The Jungle Party, which lasted three hours, produced 152 tons of greenhouse gases, which the average Indian would need three lifetimes to match. Before a DJ set by the Brazilian girls, a group with no actual Brazilians and only one girl, the bankers held a press conference. It was early 2008, and as the world was still reeling from a record melt in the Arctic and a scary film by Al Gore and a bleak report by the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, half a dozen investment houses had launched global warming-themed mutual funds. Deutsche Bank's was the $2.9 billion DWS climate change fund, and the jungle vent was meant to promote it. Without taking a position on climate change, a press release had explained, the DWS climate change fund is on the cutting edge of climate change investing. The event's objective was not, quote, 
to show that climate change is happening, said the executive Axel Schwarzer, but that it creates related climate change investment opportunities. Another release went further. The debate around climate change is shifting away from cost and risk, it said, toward the question of how to capitalize on exciting opportunities. Nothing as big and universal as climate change could be all bad. An ecological catastrophe was not necessarily a financial catastrophe for everyone. Deutsche Bank's chief climate strategist, Mark Fulton, worked in Midtown in a building on Park Avenue, and I visited him there, visited him there after the roadshow was done, clearing security and then riding a silent elevator to the 27th floor. His was a corner office, but it was small and cluttered with papers, and Fulton, an Oxford-educated Australian, looked as much scientist as capitalist. His desire to fight climate change was genuine. He told me he'd read The Club of Rome's Limits to Growth, which is a neo-Malthusian take on the climate's on the planet's carrying capacity as a schoolboy in the 1970s. It made quite an impact, he said. They were talking about everything running out. What are we going to do? We have to change the way we live. But instead of working for Greenpeace, which he'd considered, he became a stockbroker, then an analyst, and he'd eventually helped Deutsche Bank identify global warming as a megatrend that could generate profits for decades. It's always helped me, climate change, in my career, he joked. Well, the DWS fund invested most heavily in the technology to build a greener world, in wind power and solar power, power, in smart grids and smarter electrical meters. It had bought other stocks, too, companies that fit the portfolio not because they could help fight climate change, but because the warmer the world, the less habitable it became, the bigger the windfall. They were a tacit recognition that we were already failing to stop climate change. There was the planet's largest water company, Veolia, which manages pipes and builds desalination plants in 74 countries on five continents. Monsanto and Syngenta, ag biotech giants that were tweaking genes to develop drought-resistant crops. And Viterra, a fast-growing agribusiness in temperate Canada. The fund also had shares of Duyuan Global Water, one of the biggest water treatment companies in desiccating China, and two fertilizer multinationals, Yara and Agrium. When I asked Fulton how the bank planned to capitalize on rising sea levels, he mentioned a small play in a Dutch dredging company, Royal Balscalis, which had just rebuilt an island in the Maldives, inundated by a 2004 tsunami. Where are you going to get seawall expertise but from the Dutch, he asked. Other investors told a similar story. They bought clean tech, green tech, the building blocks of the new low-carbon economy, but they were also starting to hedge. In London, the Schroeder Global Climate Change Fund was investing in Russian farmland. Cheap, fertile soil suddenly made deer by milder winters and a drought-fueled global food crisis. And its manager was taking the logic a step further, buying stock in supermarket chains such as Carrefour and Tesco. If climate change will be a big negative for crop yields, he told me, then people will just have to spend more on food. Retailers are a clear beneficiary. Across town, another fund manager explained why he was bullish on the reinsurers Munich RE and Swiss RE. As natural disasters start to be more common, he said, as climate change starts to cause more flooding and droughts, insurance companies, reinsurers in particular, should get pricing power. Because it allows insurers to jack, rate, jack up rates, hurricane season, he said, is actually quite a positive thing. A partner to storied Wall Street investment bank showed me photographs of Ukrainian farmland and said his firm had tried to buy up vast tracts of it. Soviet-era collective farms had reverted to what he called pseudo-subsistence agriculture. You could come to these guys and get, like, Thousands of hectares for a few bottles of, bottles of vodka and, like, two months of grain, he said. You could literally give them vodka and grain. In the run-up to successive climate conferences in Copenhagen, Cancun, Durban, and Doha, as everyone else was fretting about polar bears and electric cars, some fund managers worried that I would misunderstand them, that I would mistake them for starry-eyed activists, that I would mistake theirs for just another green or socially responsible fund. A lot of people think, how do you invest in climate change and essentially come up with one or two or maybe three areas like alternative energy, said Sophie Horsfall, a manager at Britain's F&C Global Climate Opportunities Fund. For us, well, there's an awful lot more to it. We have to separate out the ethical issues. We have to move away from the environmental issues. We have to take a step back. I must have looked confused. We have to think about the reality of climate change, she continued. It's quite difficult, isn't it? A few more minutes.
than photos. The idea that people are irrational has lately been in vogue. We can thank the global financial crisis for that. Behavioral economists have reminded us that the market, far from being a collection of fully logical individuals, is hostage to Keynesian animal spirits, the emotions, prejudices, impulses, and shortcuts that are part of every financial bubble and part of every human decision, and part, no doubt, about our, of our empathy or apathy about reducing carbon emissions. In the United States, nearly 98% of the federal climate research budget goes to the hard sciences, which have produced mounds of evidence, enough for anyone who wants to give it an honest look, and produced increasingly refined computer models predicting an increasingly dire future. One recent prediction from MIT is of a median warming of 5.2 degrees Celsius by 2100 if we don't curtail emissions, a temperature spike that some campaigners believe could entirely melt the polar ice caps in summertime, turn parts of Central America and the southern United States into a dust bowl, and wipe island nations off the map. The remaining 2% of the federal research budget goes to social scientists, such as those with Columbia University's Center, on Re Center for Research on Environmental Decisions, or CRED, who probe what may now be the most important question. If we know the risks, why aren't we doing anything? The center's director, Elke Weber, suggests that at both levels where humans make their decisions, emotional and analytical, they're roadblocks. The emotional block is this. What we don't see doesn't scare us. The time-delayed, abstract, and often statistical nature of the risks of global warming does not evoke strong, visceral reactions, she writes. At the analytical level, there is, along with the tension between individual and systemic risk, an apparent tragedy of the commons, something that economists like to call hyperbolic discounting. It goes like this. Offer to give someone either $5 today or $10 next year, and he'll probably take the $5. Among many activists, politicians, and scientists, the assumption is that climate change now suffers mainly from a PR problem. If the proper nudges can be found or the reality of it finally made visceral, the public will take action. Unspoken and scarcely examined is a much bigger assumption. That taking action means trying to cut carbon emissions. The taking action will take a certain shape. Green roofs, carbon caps, green cars, solar panels, footpaths, forests, fluorescent bulbs, bicycles. You know, you know this list. People hope our collective fear of global warming will push us inevitably toward collective behavior. But what if the world as we know it goes on even as the planet as we know it begins to disappear? There's another possible response to melting ice caps and rising sea levels to the reality of climate change, a response that is tribal, primal, profit-driven, short-term, and not at all idealistic, and that's every man for himself every business for itself, every city for itself, every country for itself. There's the possibility that we take the $5. And now we can awkwardly do photos since the clicker doesn't work. <clears throat> so as I said, if anyone wants to start asking questions, that's fine with me. If I'm unclear, if I mumble, let me know. This is Snow Veet, or Snow White. It's at the very top of Norway in the town of Hammerfest. It was, and I think still is, the northernmost, um, northernmost natural gas facility in the entire world. And uh, to take this photo, all, all these are photos I took myself, I had to climb up a, uh, a hillside here. And this is Norway in the winter. It's, it's cold. It's dark all year round. And that, that flame, I could feel the heat on my face. It was two miles away. The first thing it did, this is, this is actually the day it opened. First thing it did was coat all the cars in town with this black soot. It had to cough a little bit, I guess. And, and everyone had, you know, the oil company had to pay out money to everybody there. And yet people were really happy about this. The people in the town are really grateful that Snowbeat is here. And the reason is that this is an old fishing town that had run out of money. And a deputy mayor had told me, you know, we used to have these big fights, you know, these guys fighting with knives. And then he said, well, you know, there's still fights, but they don't, they don't fight with knives anymore. He, they're building a, this incredible well, a place that looks sort of like this hotel in this tiny fishing village. They're, uh, they had a plan because of the permanent darkness to, to uh, electrify the hills somehow, make an artificial sun so they could have a, 
something less depressing in wintertime. The reason for all this is that the Arctic is thought to hold about 22% of the world's undiscovered oil and gas. And that figure's a bit old. That figure's pre-fracking. So the gas is, the percentage of gas is now less. But it's still a lot of oil. And surprising to me was that oil companies don't doubt climate change anymore. You go to Exxon's website, there it is. We think climate change is a problem. We think the world should do something about it. Shell, which uh, as some people may know has had some problems in Alaska, they've believed in climate change for 30 years. Internally they had carbon pricing. They had, uh, they had this famous futurist group. It's called scenario planning they do at Shell. And they saw things coming like the fall of the Soviet Union. It's not, it's not futurism in saying this is what's going to happen. It's futurism that says here are a couple stories about what could happen in the next 50 years. And here's how we prepare for those two realities to come true. And as part of their scenarios decades ago, they said, okay, climate change is real. We need to get ready for that. That's one reason that they've moved more into gas than oil. And you'll never get anyone to say it out loud. It's quite clear that exploration in the Arctic is made easier the less ice there is. The season is longer. The, uh, if there is, God forbid, a spill, the uh, cleanup is much easier in open water. You know, the dispersants and whatnot, chemicals simply don't work in cold, in cold water or in ice as much. And um, beyond that, you know, skimmers don't work. So what they normally do is just, if, if there's a spill in the Arctic, which hasn't happened much, thankfully, then you just light the oil on fire, burn it off the surface. That's about the best you can do. So as people may know, Shell, Shell had a plan to get up to, uh, I think within a generation it would be their number one source of crude would be the Arctic, um, the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. And a few years ago, it had a, if we can probably do the next slide. I don't remember what's, what's next. Yes, here. <clears throat> At this lease sale, Shell paid, uh, this, is, this is in Anchorage, this is in uh, 2008, I believe, and it's it's when Shell went past these protesters and, and ConocoPhillips and uh, Statoil from Norway and a few others uh, did record bid for the Arctic Ocean, the Chukchi and Beaufort Seas. Shell itself paid 2.1 billion dollars for these leases offshore, and the idea is that that will will keep Alaska in the oil, as everyone may know. Prudhoe Bay is running out, and so this find in the Chukchi Sea could be very big. Um, and the and ice pulling back is part of that story. It's not. It's still a problem. You know, when they did drill some wells in 2012, a, a giant ice flow came and they had to move everything for a bit. And now their their drill ship did run into the rocks, and they've recently canceled those plans for now. But but that is one one thing that's happening as the ice pulls back. There's been a ton of oil exploration up there, and for places like Hammerfest, they're happy about it. The next one. Another place that's happy about climate change is Greenland. This is inside the Black Angel Mine, which in the 70s had the highest grade zinc in the entire world. Still may do. They thought they got most of it. But when zinc prices were high in, in a little less than a decade ago, some geologists went back and said, well, let's see what's there. And the first thing they found was that you could now, the shipping season to and from this mine was about two months longer than it had been. The ice had pulled back so much that you could get, it wasn't, frozen out as quickly. The second thing was one of these geologists was on a day hike on his day off and walking around and, and he saw where this glacier had pulled back. And at the former foot of the glacier, there was a giant deposit of zinc just as big as the first one. And I said, well, there we go. They opened up the zinc mine. And uh, you see Greenland is 57,000 people. It's, uh, I, I didn't actually know this about Greenland before. It has a, a population of 57,000 people. It's been a colony of Denmark for centuries, and they want to be free. They want their independence. Greenland could conceivably be the first country in the world created by climate change. If climate change is what's melting all the ice here, then they think they can, one, get oil and gas offshore, easier to get to with the ice gone, and have mines like this. A ton of gold, rare earths. They recently allowed a new law to... Uh, mine for uranium, and the thought is that they don't need the money they get every year from Denmark if they can pay their own way, and the thought is that mining is the thing that can do it for them. So I traveled around with a bunch of politicians trying to sell the people on the idea of independence based on mining, and yeah, 
almost to a person. They're, they're sad about not being able to hunt seals like they used to. They're happy to have their independence, and if mining's the way to get there and climate change is the way to get there, so be it. Person. Here's a, another thing that's happening in Greenland is they're doing quite well with tourism. Everyone wants to come see the glaciers slide into the sea. This is the Lulisat. This is the town of Lulisat. And those, uh, those are the same icebergs that one of these hit the Titanic, or vice versa. And um, it's the most active glacier in the world. Uh, recent data shows it's speeding up incredibly. And you can, you can sit there at a nice hotel here and, and sort of watch the glaciers or the icebergs cave off the glacier, and then they go into this bay. Um, they're booming tourism. This is an iceberg on the way to uh, that same Black Angel mine. I just think it's pretty. I don't have too much to say. This is one of the towns we visited with the politi local politicians. The, uh, you wouldn't believe it, but Greenland has four different political parties. Actually, maybe a fifth now. The, the former premier has just splintered off. So those 57,000 people have all these different parties. <clears throat> Most of them were pro-independence. Um, I traveled here with the leaders of a few of them, and they went to this village and said, well, here's, here's the plan. And a few months later, the village voted 100% in, uh, in favor of this, this pathway to independence called self-governance. You can see they already had the flags. That's the Greenlandic flag, in case you don't recognize it. So moving on to uh, water issues. This is Ashkelon in Israel. It, it was the world's biggest desalination plant. And, and it's, this technology is one of the things that allows Israel to be what it is. You know, Israel is you know, famously the startup nation, uh, the, the birth story of all those people ending up, you know, mostly Eastern Europeans returning or coming to this, this land that from the Bible they, they'd read that it was covered in trees, uh, that, that there were trees there. And now all the trees were gone and it was arid. And, and of course, coming from places like Eastern Europe, they wanted uh, something greener than, than the Israel of the 40s and 50s. And some of the nationalists, early nationalists said, well, you know, we need, we need water. All sorts of water issues have happened. One of them is desalination. Israel is one of the leading countries doing desalination. And a very strange story that connects to the company that built, the, built this called Israel Desalination Enterprises. I'll try to tell it very quickly. Basically, on the path to try and come up with a desalination technology, they accidentally built the world's best snowmaker, and <laughs> <clears throat> which is now in use in Austria and Zermatt, and they're trying to sell the prototype around the world in Austria and Zermatt, Switzerland. And the, the, quick, the quick science here is that one way to separate salt and, and uh, water is to freeze it. Freeze the water, and of course, ice doesn't have any salt in it, or at least not much. And one way to freeze, to make water freeze, is either cold, we know that one, although not around here, and, uh, and the other one is a vacuum, a giant vacuum. So they built basically a giant vacuum chamber, and they would separate the ice, or the, yeah, the ice and the salt that way. Turned out to be a, kind of a bad way to do desalination at great volumes. Everyone is now going toward a, you know, reverse osmosis, which is basically shove water through a bunch of membranes that gets out the salt. But they, they now are selling both of these technologies. I think something like 400 desalination plants around the world. And, you know, there's some environmental downsides to desalination. One of them is the brine that, you know, take out some of the salt here. You're left with something that's a lot saltier and something that's less salty. What do you do with the salty part? Usually the answer is you put it into the ocean again, and that there, there are ways to deal with that. This plant's co-located with a, uh, uh, an energy plant, a coal plant, and they would just release the cooling water from the coal, and so it would dilute it. Um, the other thing is that it's incredibly energy intensive. It's incredibly expensive to do desalination. Not everyone can afford it. So desalination actually ends up using a lot of energy and therefore emitting a lot of carbon. It's the kind of thing that countries like ours can afford. It's the kind of thing that many countries with water problems in the world simply cannot. And that was something I found across the board. As some countries will perhaps prosper, you know, Greenland will perhaps prosper with climate change, at least in the short term. You know, some people see this as a major boon. Of course, Israelis who are selling desalination plants, insofar as climate change causes more drought, then climate change is great for business. Um, and, and also places like Israel will, if they're not selling things, at least they'll be able to afford the technology. We'll be able to afford the technology. A lot of places will not. 
And so adaptation, which is what's, what you call living with the world that's being created, is perhaps not as democratic as is uh, mitigation, which is cutting the emissions, or at least not automatically so. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about that as we go on. That's, that's part of what I was saying about the tragedy of the commons, is that it's not, not entirely common. Oh, this is, this is Austria. This is that vacuum chamber. And uh, the ski area here, Pitztal, which didn't need, didn't need this thing to be operational when I visited. In fact, my, my wife and I had an excellent ski, that, ski day. There was at least that much of natural snow to ski on top of. But they, um, it's, it's helped the local economy incredibly. They, they do what they're doing in Sochi, where they store a lot of snow under tarps. Now, the Sochi Olympics, as you probably know, are happening now in part because last year they said, uh-oh, we're having the Olympics in the tropics. Let's put a bunch of, let's, let's keep a bunch of snow here for next year, and they put it under these tarps. That's something that had been pioneered in places like Pitztal. So between the snow under the tarps and this thing, which can, which can put snow on the last bit where the glacier is kind of pulled back, and they can do, they can do the spring or the uh, October and November, September skiing that does a lot of their business. <clears throat> These are um, private firefighters in Los Angeles working for insurance companies, mainly AIG and farmers. The uh, business model is straightforward. As um, they, they said that their chief said, you know, climate change is doing weird things with fire season. We used to have our fires mostly in the fall. You know, there'd be winds would come up, they'd blow up these fires. And so they would cause fire to spread. And so a house would burn down and that was that. We'd always be ready for that. But now fires can kind of pop up whenever, and it's coming at a time when government budgets are stretched. So this public firefighter said, I'm going to go private. I'm going to be a, a private firefighting company. And it, it seems like a, a sensible idea to a degree. I can explain later why it's not entirely so. But he, he found that, sure, you can have someone, when a fire is approaching their house, call you. And they would go and they'd spray it down with this thing called FOSCheck, which is what you see dropped from the airplanes and they go over forest fires. But the much more lucrative thing was to work for the insurance companies because if you're AIG and you've got a million-dollar home that can either burn down or you can have these guys on retainer to go stop it from burning down, well, it's much cheaper to have these guys on retainer. And um, the day I spent with them showed me that forget whether it's fair to have those who can afford to have their own private firefighting service deal with this. There's that aspect. But the other thing is it doesn't work very well. It's because public firefighting is as simple as finding where the fire is and trying to stop it. This is the complicated thing of trying to figure out where the fire is going and uh, trying to figure out which houses in its path are your clients. Trying to do this in a disaster zone when mobile phones often don't work because everyone's on their phone trying to get out. So this is the only house I saw them spray. Mostly we drove around in circles, and, and the chief, who's a real fan of wasabi peas, I don't know why, but he loves them. Yeah, he stopped at one one neighborhood that was burning down and, and uh, put in an order for wasabi peas from his favorite distributor, and we did things like that. So I, I can't say it's gonna gonna have a long life this business. Okay, next one, please. Oh yeah, again, this is like the iceberg photo. I just think it's funny. All right, this is this is a neighborhood where we saved that house, equestrian neighborhood, lots of ponies. More about water. Uh, I think people in Texas are more aware of of water rights and water investing than are most places in the country. This is California where it's a little bit different because a lot of it's not groundwater, it's surface water. And it's a, the laws are slightly different. The, the basic concept is whoever had the first straw in the river, as long as he keeps on sucking and is putting that water to use, can keep on using it. And this is the first straw, the All-American Canal, which runs along the border with Mexico, so-called all-American because it used to run into Mexico and we were worried about that, so we redug it. Um, and and more recently, as as the drought happened along the Colorado system and, and hit California, prior to the current drought in California, people realized that all this water was seeping through the bottom of the canal. It was lined with dirt rather than cement. And by treaty, that's American water. In practice, it was bubbling up in Mexico. In fact, the the Mexicali Valley has a whole farming region based on water that comes out of the bottom of the All-American Canal, bubbles up, and then they can use it for farming. So uh, a bunch of Western state senators 
and the uh, city of San Diego and others said, well, we've got to do something about this. So they lined the canal with uh, concrete. They made a whole new canal. And uh, Mexicali Valley has probably 10 or 15 years before the, the water they have turns saline, and eventually it'll be gone entirely. San Diego got most of that water, and uh, California will survive a little bit longer because of that. I, I talked to various hedge funds that are investing in water rights and investing in water. The stupid way to invest in water, if you're looking for a big return, is to invest in utilities because utilities are controlled by governments. Governments won't let you, let you jack up rates exorbitantly, as one guy put it. Uh, water rights, on the other hand, you can go to ranchers and say, look, your sons don't want to ranch this anymore. You're, you're sitting on a lot of water, and I'd like to buy it. You can bundle that and, and sell it to places downstream. You can, in Australia, you can, you can buy it and then actually rent it back to the farmers and then have this sort of underlying asset, as it's called, uh, go up. It's not a, it's not a big business. Uh, it's pretty specific to go around all these ranchers here, but that's, that's one thing that's happening with water, and there are many weirder schemes than that. Another thing, in case you're wondering, oil tankers putting, filling them with water and then shipping them around the world is a really stupid idea because water weighs eight pounds per gallon. It's just the economics will never work. Better to do desalination. The guy on the right is another hedge fund manager from New York. And the guy on the left is the son of the most feared general in South Sudan. This is in Juba, in the capital of South Sudan. And the guy on the right had a simple bet, well, sort of a double bet. The one was that that guy's dad was the strongest man around and that he could secure a giant farmland deal for him. The, the second bet was that food prices will go up, as, as mentioned in the thing I was reading, that drought will cause prices to go up in the places like South Sudan, which obviously Sudan is not, not wet everywhere, but here they have the Nile. And the places like this where you can plant a, plant a little bit of a seed in it, a couple months, and it pops up, incredibly fertile land, are not being used. And so he, he got a deal to get 400,000 hectares of land. That's, that's a little bigger than Delaware. And, uh, and farm it. And, and this is a process that's happening all over Africa. Apparently an area the size of France has now changed hands. A lot of the investments are done by, by China and Chinese companies because China's about hit its capacity for food. Other places are uh, the Gulf states. Arab countries have pretty much mined all their aquifers for what they can get. They grew a lot of their own food, and now they can't. So, so they're buying plots of land in, say, Ethiopia, growing their food, and then shipping it back home. And then major investment funds are doing this as well. Ukraine is a popular tar target. Ukraine, because, because of the collective farms mentioned earlier, but also because... As some told me, the earth is the best in the world, but it's always been a little bit too cold in winter. But now it's not. Now it's getting warmer. Now, as for um, adaptation on the what Africans themselves can do to prepare for climate change, it's, it's things like this. These are the, uh, this is the Great Green Wall. It's a plan to do a wall of trees 15 kilometers thick, about 10 miles thick, all across Africa from Senegal, which is where this is taken, to Djibouti on the other side. And the idea, and it's not a very good idea, is to stop the Sahara from expanding into the Sahel, these grasslands here. And, and this supposes that, that uh, expansion of deserts is sort of like you know, ancient warfare where you have these phalanxes next to each other. Oops, sorry. The phalanxes next to each other, and you can just, if you just have your trenches here, you'll be okay. Whereas apparently uh, desert, deserts spread more like leprosy. Bunch of spots appear, bunch of spots appear, and then poof, it's desert. But, but this is being carried out by the Senegalese, and and there's something, there's an ulterior motive going on, and that's that it's a make-work project. Senegal is one of the countries that has the most out-migration to Europe of anywhere in Sub-Saharan Africa, and this is for many reasons. Climate change is not the main one yet, but but young Senegalese are going to Europe in the way that young Latin Americans often come to this country and they're blocked by a, a new border agency and an increasingly big set of walls. Um, but this, this region, all the young people are going away. I, I found one translator who could help me. He was sort of a hip-hop guy, his hat sideways, and he was the only person who spoke English anywhere in this entire area. 
And uh, why he stayed, he was just like, everyone else left. All my friends left. My brothers left. But they, they didn't have any, uh, the land was getting harder to farm and harder to do anything. So they were going. Um, although, to be very clear, I, it's unclear that climate change is yet the thing. But it is one of the reasons that Europe is, is adding the, the border protection. It's been mentioned in the European, various European meetings that climate refugees, as some would call these, are going to come. And we need to be ready for this. That's, again, all the kids planting the Great Green Wall. Next again. Some of them end up not in uh, mainland Europe where they want to go, but in Malta, which is a small island off of Italy. It's uh, the second most densely populated island outside of Singapore, I believe. And the way the European border policy works and is that if you're the one who gets people trying to come uh, to Europe, then you're the one who has to deal with them. And nobody wants to go to Malta, but if you're trying to get to Italy, often your, your little boat, and it's these ones here, built by these syndicates in Libya, your little boat will get blown off course and you'll land in, land in Malta, and so they'll save you. And then they'll throw you in jail for 18 months, mandatory. So you're not going to come to Malta again. But actually you're stuck there because you can't go on to another country in Europe because of the, the way the regulations are set up. So Malta is is suffering quite badly. It's not big enough to handle all these people. And then it's sort of putting these guys in jail. Uh, other, Spain had a whole, Spain has a lot of migration as well. It had a whole campaign where they hired famous singers to go to Senegal and explain why they shouldn't go by boat. And, and thousands of people are dying as they try to cross the Mediterranean here. Another place that everyone talks about with migration is Bangladesh. This is where uh, Cyclone Sitter hit, I think in 2007 or 2008. And this is how they do the schools now. They're schools slash uh, cyclone centers. They're built on stilts. Uh, it's not, you know, the, the science as to whether climate change will cause more hurricanes and cyclones is actually not very clear at all. Uh, there seems to be a growing consensus that it will cause bigger storms when they hit. But the real signal of climate change in Bangladesh is salinity. It's that as the seas slowly rise, all the crops, all the, the rice mainly, can't grow as well, so people can't feed themselves. So there's incredible migration to the capital, Dhaka, which swells by about 500,000 people every year. And even I, I experienced going down with a local guide, taking this ferry down, the, down to the, through the end of Bangladesh into the Bay of Bengal. And it was pretty empty on the way down. And on the way back up, the entire bottom of the thing was filled with people. I didn't pay much mind to it. And then he pointed out, I said, see that? See that? Everyone's moving. Everyone's moving back up to the capital. And if we could get the next one. This is one reason that the, the world's biggest border fence is being built around Bangladesh by India. Again, this isn't something that started because of climate change by any means. But increasingly, climate change is mentioned even by local activists, sort of the equivalent of the Minutemen are there walking the fence line, saying, look, there's a hole here. We need some fence here. And they're saying, we've got to get this closed before before a third of Bangladesh disappears and everyone tries to come to India. Already there's a ton of migration there. Uh, in Delhi, in the defense establishment, there's a growing awareness that there are these migration problems that could stem from climate change if it happens as expected in Bangladesh. And, and so this, this fence is becoming more and more of a priority. And speaking of barriers, this is the Maasland barrier in outside of Rotterdam in Holland. You'd think the Dutch would be freaked out about climate change. The Netherlands is very low-lying, and uh, famously they have to fight water all the time. But they're really not. When I went there, they talked about climate change as an opportunity. It's an opportunity to build things like this for the rest of the world. They think that they've got an existing system to, you know, they've got the, the levees, they've got their, their seawalls. They're not so concerned about adding extra feet to those. And meanwhile, places like New York City or San Francisco are turning to the Dutch for their technology. This thing is two giant gates, sort of like the, about the size of the Eiffel Tower, that close on each other. When a storm comes, they've got a computer system called the boss. And the boss says, okay, a storm surge is coming. And they, they close. They, it was close to a billion dollars to build this, and they've only used it twice. Once was in a couple of months ago. The one they have proposed for New York City would actually cost more like $10 billion, and that's because it's a much more difficult geography. 
actually require sort of ten or four different barriers, but one like this would go across the uh, the Narrows underneath the Verrazano Bridge. People may know that's between Staten Island and Brooklyn, in front of Manhattan. So I'd I'd reported this part of the book before Sandy hit, and it was incredibly strange because I went to this conference where a bunch of people presented designs for these barriers. And they all predicted exactly what would happen with Sandy. Not, not that Sandy was necessarily climate change, but they knew what would happen with a storm surge like this. They knew what would happen is if the water's a little bit higher. They know what would happen if the tide's higher. It's going to flood the subways, and Breezy Point and Queens will get it, and this part of Staten Island will be in trouble. Important thing to understand about these and a lot of the other technologies, great if you're in Manhattan, but you know, a storm surge, when it hits against a barrier like that, the water you know, has, has to go someplace. So if you block off Manhattan, that water actually bounces, and it would hit Staten Island and Brooklyn. A lot of the places that got Sandy got hit by Sandy, they would get an extra two feet of flooding, and that's again across the board. It shows you that generally those who scientists believe have caused most of the emissions, have caused the most problem, are the wealthier countries, wealthier people. Those are the people who can usually afford these salves with climate change. And as we go toward a world of adaptation, if that's what happens, you'll see things like this. You'll see Manhattan protected, but maybe Brooklyn gets an extra two feet. And I think this is the last one. I hope so. And uh, this is in uh, Key West, Florida. Not about sea level rise, although they're worried about that too. But there, um, some science shows that things like dengue fever and malaria will spread, that certain tropical diseases will spread if there's climate change. And one way to deal with that, as you can see, is planes, chemicals. When I was there, they were flying over town with this chopper with like these, looked like it was crop dusting. And it was spraying something down on all the houses and it caked all the cards in like a, a milk. It was, it was like Norway all over again. And uh, and this may be the first place in the United States where there's an intentional release of genetically modified insects, mosquitoes. It's a in, somewhat ingenious technology developed in the UK. And it's, as it described to me, you have to create a super sexy male mosquito that the wild females are going to want to mate with. If you manage that and you release enough of them and the wild females mate with these, these genetically modified males, then the offspring will have a kill switch, basically. They won't live past the larvae stage. They'll be able to knock out the entire population. Um, I honestly don't know what I think of this technology. It's, it's promising, I must admit. And, it, and I'm a, you know, everyone, everyone has their opinion about genetic modification. I think a lot of the fears are understandable. At the same time, the alternative is a lot of chemicals. And uh, in any case, this isn't a solution for the entire world, although this one is cheaper than a lot of the other ways that people deal with dengue. So um, I think that's it. Oh, final one. Here's here's uh, the last one of the last moments. The Kolok, that Shell's drill ship, was was seen in uh, American waters. It's been sold for either scrap or reuse now. This is the one that hit the rocks up in in Kodiak, Alaska, about a year ago, and dashed Shell's uh, now six billion dollar Arctic plans, at least for the near term. I, as mentioned, Shell is very interesting to me because it's the last thing you would think would believe in climate change. It's an oil company, and it's a very smart one. And this was what happened to them up in the Arctic. It, for me, it was a parable about sort of the limits of what we can figure out with this climate change thing, and, and maybe the complicated, complicated responses to it are, are just that. And with that, uh, questions, please. <clears throat> Okay. Happy to take some questions from the audience. Um, do you believe? Yeah, I've got a microphone. Thank you. Do you believe John Kerry's latest statement, saying that the world is facing a climate change and not global warming, has any impact on business being concerned about the Earth's climate? I think so. You know, I <clears throat> I didn't come at this book as a, as I mentioned, as a climate activist by any means. I came at it as a as a journalist, and. And so I wasn't interested in proving that climate change was real. I, I happen to believe it myself. But I think it's hard it's a hard conversation to have with people because opinions are entrenched. Nobody's listening to the science on either side anymore. 
Um, one thing that I think is changing the conversation is, is things like this, that business is taking climate change as a strategic issue. You know, I mentioned the oil companies, but there was a big article about uh, Coca-Cola recently. Coca-Cola's main ingredient is water, and they are increasingly active about climate change because they're worried about worried about running out of water. They're worried about drought where they have their, their plants. And so I think that statements like, like Kerry's that put climate change in a sort of strategic issue, not a, not a political issue, not, not we need cap and trade or we need to save polar bears. They're, they're totally different. Uh, related to this is the military. The military has been you know, very interested in climate change. I met with some, some people who cannot be identified in, uh, in Washington, D.C. in reporting this book. And, and they had done all kinds of intelligence work on climate change. And, and they did it because they, they were purely a strategic issue. Not, not what's it going to do to our economy to deal with climate change. That's a whole different conversation. But if and when climate change happens, as most scientists say it will, what's this mean for our country? The answer, by the way, was that the talk of like a war over the Arctic, what the Canadians were doing is, is actually as silly as it seems. Um, the, the idea that five stable powers, those are the countries ringing the Arctic, which are four NATO countries plus Russia, are actually going to go to blows when they're all getting this giant chunk of new territory to drill on. It just doesn't make any geopolitical sense. I mean, sure, Russia's a wild card, but but they weren't worried about that. They were worried about refugee issues. They were worried about acting as the world's policemen when when people are moving from country to country and what that'll do to places that are already stressed. The uh, next card is a two, has two questions. I think you've addressed the first one, although if you have more comments, uh, that would be great. But the second question is, is more specific. The general question first is how will global warming influence the business world? And then the more specific question is, what are your thoughts on the future of biofuels and solar energy? I don't know very much about either biofuels or solar, actually. I stayed away from that stuff because it may or may not be a little bit boring, <clears throat> or at least not boring, but it's been very well covered by other books, other journalists, and there's a whole world out there about that. Um, what I do know about biofuels is actually through Shell, and that they they had come out with two scenarios, sort of futuristic scenarios, and one of them told them that they needed to go green. And so for a while they did that. They, they were hugely invested in solar. They were hugely invested in biofuels, a wind a wind array off the UK coast, and they pulled out a lot of that stuff. What they stayed in was biofuels, and they stayed in algae biofuels in particular and some sugarcane biofuels in Brazil because those are much more promising than the sort of first-generation ones that tend to use a lot of corn and maybe be sort of net zero or even worse for, for carbon emissions. So they, they looked at, you know, ethanol and so as this necessity doesn't do anything for us or the world. There's not much money in it, and there's not much carbon savings in it. But they were very excited about things in things in Brazil. The switchgrass was one, and the sugar canes. And uh, one final question from the students: Do you think that carbon emissions, even if they don't affect global climate change, will still affect the environment around us in positive or negative ways? Well, again, <clears throat> I'm not. I was a uh, philosophy major. I've steered clear away from the science as much as I could, so I'm, I'm parroting people here. But but there is a well-documented documented thing called the what's it, the carbon fertilization effect, and that's that's simply pump a greenhouse full of of some of carbon, and plants will grow better. You know, carbon is a building block of life, and that's that's true. It's it's different in a greenhouse than in real life. It turns out that they're doing more studies. Carbon does it does help plants grow. There's no denying that. But a slight temperature variance, recent studies are showing that even a slight temperature variance does much more damage to plant growth than does uh, the little added carbon. So yeah, carbon, in general, carbon is innocuous. It's not a pollutant in any real sense of the world. Word. But um, at the scale we're doing, perhaps that's something else. Uh, locally, I, you know, it might help the plants grow a little bit, but that's short term. Yes, sir.
Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, I don't, again, this is a bit out of my area of expertise. I'm, I tried to stay away from this kind of stuff by basically going places with business people who believed. So I didn't have to be like, this is climate change and this is not. But what I know about that Newsweek article, which is mentioned a lot, that was a thing, that was the press being silly. That wasn't many scientists who were talking about this global cooling. But what you say about climate change in general being a, a cyclical thing is absolutely true. And that sea level rise, for instance, 120 feet is what we've what the world has dealt with before. I mean, the ice ages and then the end of the ice ages, massive changes. So, so yes, from that perspective, what we're doing now is tiny. But the perspective I think a lot of people bring to it is much needed. One is the speed, and the other one is what human activity is like this much longer. This human uh, civilization is like in this period of time. We've built our major cities in river deltas at the edge of the water. We've built highway systems. There are more of us than ever. You know, hunter-gatherers can and did move away as the seas rose again, and they spread out as the as the seas fell. They've dealt with temperature in a, in a much more, I mean, they were closer to nature. They, uh, they didn't build their airports in floodplains. They didn't build their train systems in floodplains. They didn't build their buildings where we build our buildings. They didn't build their entire civilization around the climate we have. And that's what we've done. If it does change in the way that most scientists do, then it's a different kind of catastrophe than a slow-moving thing over the eons that absolutely happened, but is just a different time scale. And we were a different kind of civilization then. I have a question uh, more geared towards what you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. I'm really interested to hear from you. At what moment or was there one thing that you experienced or that you saw that was just baffling or just took your breath away mm -hmm. that you knew that you were or solidified your ideas that this book would be a significant contribution and that you were on the right path? Hmm. <clears throat> well, I'm sure the significant contribution thing can be debated in will, although my mom agrees with you very much. Um, you know, honestly, I don't. I don't yet know that it will be, and, and I haven't had that moment fully happen yet. But I was, I was frankly surprised that, that no one else noticed all these things, that the people were not being dogmatic about climate change, but just sort of the business people and people and militaries were saying, okay, well, look at this thing, this big change. Let's, let's think about this strategically. Let's start... We'll start looking at it that way. And people have talked a little bit about the military, but mostly we seem to be stuck in this conversation about is it real, is it not? Is it real, is it not? And there's nothing more boring than that. So if, if in a slight way I've changed that or could change that, that's, that's helpful because I think the, the issue is not whether it's real. And I don't think that I respect people who, who honestly doubt it. I think they're, the science is not the science of basic physics does carbon cause warming? Yes. Will it do this? How bad will it be? There's a lot of variance. You know, that, and I think there are real questions about certain aspects of the science, but there's not much question anymore about, as far as I can tell, about is climate change something that's happening? Um, and, and the next conversation, I think, is what is going to happen about it. What are people going to do about it? And I think that's, that's not a liberal conservative divide in the way that is it real or is it not real has become. And I think that, you know, some of the people who've done the most for very distant places in the planet are you know, evangelicals, a generally conservative lot. I mean, look at South Sudan that I visited. That was a country that exists in large part because of evangelicals. Look at, look at how much we cared about Tahrir Square in Egypt. And it wasn't for our own self-interest or anything like that. It was because, you know, people care about we're beginning to care about distant places, and that's maybe another trend of globalization that's helping here. Or maybe it's the Internet. I'm not sure what it is. But, but I think that conversation about, okay, if this is happening, what do we do about it, is, is the one that needs to take place. And the one that is, is it real or not, is, is like beating your head against a wall. And, and I, it's not that you know, people can think what they want, but I don't think it's very helpful anymore. Yes, in the back. 
So um, which, which of the uh, projects that you saw was the most credible, scalable investment opportunity, just so I don't appear like a schmuck, <laughs> or a university foundation, you know, patient capital, uh -huh. multi-decadal, and which was the most outrageous, and are they the same? Good question. Very good question. And, and don't worry, it's one my father-in-law asked when I was in, a, in my wife's hometown doing a book talk. So same thing. Um, first of all, it's actually been interesting to see some of the, the Deutsche Bank fund that I read about. I, in my understanding is they've either closed that fund or changed it very much. And the reason is that, I think, is that the time scale is simply like the returns on climate change are way too slow. It looks like it's, even if it's smart long-term, as a short-term bet, something that takes this long is, is really dangerous. And so, yeah, you're looking at, you're looking at institutional money that might, that might be able to bet on this. It's tough. Um, my understanding is that the harder, the most difficult science is to tell you what's going to happen, where, and when. The easier science is things that are like, well, things that are sort of inevitable like sea level rise. Not that we know how much, but you know that the seas are going to rise. If I, uh, there's a company called Arcadis. They're Dutch. They might build that seawall for New York City. They're, um, they're smart. They see what's coming. Nobody really knows how much the seas are going to rise, but it's pretty clear that it's a company like that that will do well if so. So that would be one. Um, water is popular if you know how to do it right. There was a ton of money went into water and a ton of money went into efficiency and, and things like that, so much that the, the smart hedge funds that had been in that originally kind of got out, actually pulled their money out and, and put it into water rights itself because it, it was so overheated. This is sort of after Al Gore had his movie. Suddenly there's like a burst of water funds and water investing. So those ones. Um, as mentioned, private firefighting, bad idea. Forget the ethics of it. Forget anything else. It's just stupid. Um, there are a few things like that. Investing in Greenland, you know, Arctic oil. I, I would have said Arctic oil is not a bad bet if you want to want to drill the thing that's uh, perhaps causing this problem. But but that actually looks increasingly difficult. You know, it's it's very dependent on the price of oil. It's very dependent on these huge logistical challenges. And in some place that's that far away from civilization is always going to be difficult. So. So I don't know. I, you know, I think most of the things I look at in this book as sort of a guidebook to investing, I wouldn't bet on many of them at all. Do in your studies, uh, did you come across any strategists, either in corporate or government level, that want to do something about the destruction of rainforests and maybe reversing that and even replenish them, because I've heard this is really a, a really yeah. understudied uh, uh, issue. Unfortunately, not not much. The um, A couple things. One, Brazil is actually another, had been another major target of farmland investing. And, and so some of those funds had actually been accused of doing the reverse, of creating these mega farms that were doing a lot of deforestation. Um, <coughs> But a lot of them were, were trying to do it. I'm going to get the term wrong, but they were trying to not clear cut in order to grow food. They were trying to grow them both in the, in the same way, and they had some really smart ideas about that. Um, the, it's true that a lot of the carbon emissions is not from cars or factories. It's actually from cutting of forests. Um, one thing I looked at is trying to reverse that through, again, genetic modification of creating these trees. I think they were poplars that would suck, they would sequester more carbon than the average tree does. You know, plant a tree, it cuts carbon out of the air, or pulls carbon out of the air. So there were plants to do these genetically modified trees to sort of see if they could suck more than other trees. And, and the Great Green Wall, which I mentioned, one of the, part of the logic of that is if you plant 15 kilometers of trees all across Africa, that's going to suck a whole lot of carbon out of the air. And, and reforestation in general is happening all across Africa. The, the Amazon itself, unfortunately, I didn't, didn't much visit. They are... In Brazil, they are testing some of those genetically modified mosquitoes, though. I'll tell you that. Okay. 
For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.